Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And this is Speaking of Race. Um, today, we are with the fabulous Teresa Crabelli. She's Yay. an associate professor of history in the Department of History at the University of Alabama. She is a Brazilianist, and so we're going to be talking with her today about race, science, and history in Brazil. So part of what we've been doing recently with the two episodes on India that Joe did when she was in India, she's back in the United States now. Hello again, America. One of the things we're trying to do is to address what we see as the really self-referential nature of discussions about race and history and science in the United States and in Western Europe. When those conversations happen at all in the United States, they're almost always narrowly focused on this tiny little slice of history and the the large but not hugely expansive scholarship on American and European white men and their scientific work. Yeah, we've even been guilty of that on the podcast. Um, but when we started looking more carefully at some of our international research settings, the first one being India, we began finding that the history of scientific racism is very much a global phenomenon, and especially in post-colonial states like India and Brazil, which we're going to talk about today. Teresa, your work focuses quite a lot on industrialization and modernization in 19th century Brazil. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but within that, you've talked in one of your essays that I read fairly recently about how Carl Linnaeus's classification systems were used in both 19th and 20th century Brazil to identify natural resources that might help the nation be more self-sufficient, for instance, through energy production. Um, there's a lot going on in Brazil around this time with race and ideas about indigeneity and tribalism as well. So can you talk about some of those developments and how they relate to the work that you do? Uh, yes. So it goes back to the 18th century with a naturalist who taught at Coimbra University in Portugal, which was the university where all Brazilians had to go to get an education. There were no universities in Brazil. Uh, until the 20th century. And so Vandelli was a correspondent of Carl Linnaeus, and they exchanged many letters, and he was very much influenced by Carl Linnaeus's classification system. But what I think it's kind of forgotten about Carl Linnaeus is he wasn't just out there deciding how plants were related to each other because it was fun. He had a very specific vision of political economy. And at the time, Sweden had just lost um, a territory in the Balkans where it got where they got timber. Um, and then they had to get all their desirable tropical commodities like sugar and tobacco from rival European powers. So Carl Linnaeus was thought, you know, if Sweden could grow its own tobacco, we wouldn't have to deal with those Dutch anymore. But the other important component was that Carl Linnaeus was also concerned about the destruction of Swedish forests. Vandelli wanted to preserve the forest and through finding other economic uses for it. So, so they were worried about slash and burn agriculture in the Amazon in the 18th century? They were. Wow. So the reason I had to bring this up because um, it's all of this generation of Brazilian scientists who are trained by Vandelli who go back to Brazil one of whom was Jose Bonifacio, who's like the Thomas Jefferson of Brazil, and he became um, really important when Brazil gained its independence in 1822. And he published in 1825 a tract calling for the abolition of slavery. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Right. It was very much linked to an environmental consciousness. We have to stop slash and burn agriculture, which is dependent and linked on slavery, 
Um, and we need to start bringing in agricultural implements and improved technology to replace the slaves. Before we move on with that, which I think is a really fascinating point of your work, can we back up a little bit and you just tell us a little bit about what slavery looked like in Brazil? Okay. Well, <laughs> historians of slavery like to talk about slave-holding societies versus slave societies. So what's the difference? A slave-holding society is a society in which people can own other people as slaves, but it's not accessible to everybody and it doesn't inform all levels of economic production. So mm. here in the South, there were places where there was free labor alongside slave labor. So that would be a slave-holding society. Yes. A slave society was a society, and this is a case in Brazil, where slavery informed every level of society and most economic production was based on slaveholding. If you didn't have slaves, it was going to be very hard to make money. And in Brazil, there was also a very strong um, social importance of slavery, uh, that, that you had slaves do your labor, whether it was mining or agriculture or domestic labor. That was how you moved up in society. So I imagine that's how Brazil became the country that imported the most slaves of any of them. Right? Yes, yes. So out of the, and there's different estimates, anywhere from 10 to 15 million slaves wow. were brought over, enslaved Africans were brought over um, the course of the slave trade, which lasted 300 years. And so somewhere between three and four million went to Brazil, another three million went to the Caribbean. Um, and then various, depending on when it was, Mexico or other parts of South America, only about half a million enslaved Africans were brought to the United States. So that's three to four million in Brazil versus half a million in the U.S. So we're talking right. about like a six to eight fold larger slave industry. Yes. And all the apparatus around the slave trade. But what's um, different about the two is it only took a month to bring a shipment of enslaved Africans from from Africa to Brazil, where it took about three months to get to the United States. That mm. meant slaves were a lot more expensive. Um, and so you had a bigger incentive to kind of take care of your slave. But in Brazil, um, first off, the tropical conditions uh, in some areas were so harsh and slaves were so cheap because you could just bring them over that people didn't bother taking care mm. of the slaves because you could just buy more. And so there was a much higher uh, mortality rate. And there's other reasons that, that are behind that, but yes. So by the t beginning of the 1800s, and this was what Jose Bonifacio saw as a problem, if you looked out on the Brazilian countryside, a majority of people were either enslaved Africans or the free population descended from Africans and only a minority were white, right, or European descended. Mm -hmm. So Europeans were always outnumbered by the non-white population, both slave and free. And Jose Bonifacio um, saw this as a problem. I don't want to derail the narrative because I want to come back to a lot of things you're saying. Yeah. But I wonder if in your courses mm -hmm. here, if students hear that narrative about Brazil and the Caribbean and then think something like, oh, so the U.S. South wasn't that bad then. Do they do a kind of moral comparison about slavery in South America versus slavery in the United States ever? You know, that's really interesting. No, it doesn't usually go okay. that way. It's actually gone the opposite really? way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've had especially students from Alabama say 
who who feel like they've had to carry the weight of that story about slavery. Like this is only Alabama and we are forever stained because of our complicated racial history. And it's like, oh, wait, like this is all of the Americas has mm. struggled with this. I think it's actually opened up the dialogue. Mm. And I think it's good because we can say, okay, we're a piece of something. Like we're all grappling with these um, legacies of of slavery and, and the fact that the United States, like Brazil, like Mexico, like the Caribbean, they were all based on racial caste systems. Okay. And mm-hmm. so I think that comparative angle is, has been actually a really positive thing. But that's awesome. And that's super relevant for, for what we're doing right now in the podcast, mm-hmm. thinking about expanding ideas about as you said, racial caste systems right. um, outside of the U.S. Um, okay, so against this backdrop of a massive and really, really central slavery system in Brazil, you were talking about how the end of slavery came about with Bonifacio. Oh, no. It was a call for the abolition of slavery, yeah, which that. really wasn't something that was being discussed in Brazil. So it was pretty outstanding that he called for this. But he linked the practice of slash and burn, which he called a barbaric tradition, to slavery. And slaves, because slaves are not Europeans, they don't have the capacity for a more civilized agriculture. Mm. So if we want to put into place this Linnaean vision of economic development, we have to stop slash and burn. We have to stop introducing Africans. What I think you're saying is that just as in the U.S., Africans were viewed as a separate group with capacities that did not meet up to European-descended peoples. Same thing in Brazil. Yes. Right. And that actually ties to what we talked about a couple of episodes ago with Linnaeus and his argument with Buffon. Buffon might have said, oh, you changed the implements, you as much as possible change the society and people from Africa will change the way they do agriculture. Linnaeus would have been like, nope, that's just part of how Africans view the world. They're just going to do this wrong kind of agriculture. And you're saying that in Brazil, the Linnaean argument about the fixity of the behavior attached to Africanness, that's what people essentially grab onto. It's that we, that we have to get rid of them completely because we're never going to be a modern nation if we keep using African labor. Now, there's a bigger context with that as the century progresses, and that's with all the the ideas about race that are coming out of the United States and Britain. And first, like the idea of manifest destiny. By the 1830s, prominent Brazilian statesmen have very much had their eye on what was happening in Ohio and then upstate New York. They wanted to replicate that. Brazilians were very aware of this idea of the Anglo-Saxon race is going is conquering a continent and and making it progress. In my classes, when I teach about why Brazilians had so much, or at least elite white Brazilians had so much racial anxiety in the 19th century, is because images like John Gast's 1872 Westward Ho. I know you've seen that, right? Is this the one with the big white woman kind of marching yeah, west with all? Of, the oh, things I know that image. Her. Totally, yeah, the figure of Columbia. Um, <laughs> and when I ask my students, like, well, what is this? What is this image telling you? And 
in the 19th century, this was progress in civilization transforming a continent. But when we look at it with 21st century eyes, it's at best ethnic cleansing and at worst genocide because this says their day is done. The Native Americans, they're going into the night and they don't have a place in this story. Brazilians are looking at this and saying, oh my gosh, we're we're not white. We're never going to be taken. They had a lot of anxiety because they didn't fit into that narrative Mm -hmm. of the white race. So that's why increasingly there were calls for immigration. Um, And in Argentina, they came up with the the phrase blanquear la nación. To whiten the nation. Whiten the nation. And that's the same idea was adopted in Brazil. Brazil's like, we need to get Africans out of here. We got to get the Africans out of here. If we're going to be taken seriously, we got to become a white nation. Hmm. We've got to do what the United States is doing. When I teach, I use this picture called The Redemption of Ham. It was painted in 1895 by a Brazilian artist. And it's um, it's a picture of a happy family kind of seated outside a, a very modest dwelling in Brazil. And there's um, to the right an African grandmother. She's very dark-skinned. She's dressed um, in very humble clothing and in the middle of the picture is a woman who's obviously mixed, right? She's um, both of European and African descent, and she has a little baby. This white man seated next to the woman with the baby, that's the husband, and he is the hardy European immigrant, the white immigrant. So obviously this African woman has had relations with a white man, and her daughter is mixed. And now her daughter partner is also a white European. So by the third generation, you got a white baby. And that's how you're going to solve the problem of a black nation. I love that that is a complete inversion of the North American story where Mm -hmm. any one drop of blackness makes you black. Black Forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's called the redemption of Ham because... We've talked in the podcast before, right? We have. Remind us. The old biblical narrative that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham becomes the progenitor of all of Africa. Right. At least according to legend, even though archaeologists would be like, no. This painting was 1895, and of course, 19th century was also the period of travels, travelers. The European travelers that started coming painting the slaves. In fact, there are some of our best records on who was enslaved, what did they look like. But the reports going back to Europe were when you disembark in Rio, it's like you're stepping into Africa. Oh, wow. It's all, mm-hmm. all you encounter are black people and whether they're free or enslaved. So there was this image in Europe and this fascination with the non-white part of Brazil. And so um, I was going to read just a little bit from John Codman, who was a captain uh, from the Northeast of the United States, who in 1870 kind of projected manifest destiny onto Brazil. So he's like, in Brazil, as has elsewhere been remarked, the racial hybrids chiefly composing the population are an unnatural, effete people who cannot long maintain their ground before advancing civilization. We have paved, meaning the Anglo-Saxons, the British and the North Americans, we have paved and lighted their streets, covered their rivers with steamers, and opened up their country with railroads. All this the great Anglo-Saxon race is doing, not for the benefit of South America, but for the occupancy of their own children, who in all these Canaanites, the descendants of Portuguese and Spanish, shall have disappeared 
will enter in and possess the land. So this Whoa. is why... That's really subtle. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why Brazilians, they had a lot of anxiety about this. Yeah. yeah. They're like, we're next. We're about to be conquered. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask, actually, since both of you do work in Brazil, right? Is there right. this kind of weird perception on behalf of Americans, maybe students, maybe others, that Brazil has somehow done race correctly compared to the United States or some other cultures that have had like African slavery influence? I do think in the 20th century, even the United Nations sent a study down in the, 18, or in the 1950s to say why does Brazil not look like South Africa or Alabama, mm-hmm. right? Like you've got all this racial violence in the American South that all this, you've got apartheid in South Africa, but Brazil, everybody's getting along there. So what's Brazil's secret? Mm-hmm. Um, so the UN thought that Brazil had done something different and mm-hmm. better than these other societies. Yes, okay. And partly that was perpetuated within Brazil with the concept of racial democracy, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So yeah. I don't know if you want to, talk a little bit about well among my students or among people that i talk to about this yes there is this sort of idea that brazil is some kind of racial utopia or that you know race exists there on a gradient or as a rainbow rather than as a as a two-part system and there is some truth to that right it is not a strictly bimodal racial system like we have in the united states for the most part or in south africa but in my experience working there on contemporary stuff, not history stuff, colorism is a huge deal. So the part of Brazil I work in is almost 100% Afro-Brazilian. And everybody hangs out and watches TV a lot because it's a rural farming community and there's lots of free time. All the soap operas feature and, and commercials feature kind of white-ish looking people of at least some European descent who tend to populate the south of the country a lot more than the north where I work. And so to me as an outsider, this this really stark privileging of a racial minority in Brazil right now. European descended Brazilians are a racial minority mm-hmm. and overrepresentation of them in the media and in advertising and stuff. So what's the difference in colorism and that's the word you used a second ago and racism? Well, colorism is the privileging of one group over another group based purely on the color of their skin. So in many cases that looks like white people or lighter skinned people of African descent showing up a lot more in culturally shared ideas of what's beautiful or what's acceptable or what's aesthetically pleasing. Whereas racism is more about privileging certain people based on the idea that they come from a different line of descent than other people. Even if you have African features and you're obviously of African descent, there are situations in which people would consider you white. In In Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. Whereas in the United States... You, know, you would like, always be lumped as black, you will even always if the color be black. of your skin is light. Okay, right. Yes. So I like think Barack Obama, he's half white, but no one would call him white here. People would call him black. And I used the example of a prominent African scholar whose wife was West Indian, and when she went to Bahia, I mean, here she'd be black, mm-hmm. but she went to Bahia, and they called her white. Mm-hmm. And she was very, very puzzled by this because Bahia is the Afro-Brazilian heart. It's kind of seen as a cultural center of Afro-Brazilian practices, music, and food, but also has one of the highest percentages of Afro-Brazilian descendants. Anyway, she went there and she was very puzzled by this. And they said, well, you're a professor. 
Mm-hmm. You can't be black, like you're white. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of association with socioeconomic status that doesn't quite work yeah. in the United States, but that doesn't mean that people aren't aware of facial features. Mm-hmm. So it's different, but you know, if you go to the poor parts of Brazil, they're mostly people of African descent, people yeah. of color. And if you go to Leblon or Ipanema, it's mostly your descendants. Mm-hmm. So there's something going on. I have more questions. Can I ask more questions? Mm -hmm. So I remember in the fall of 2016, before the U.S. election, the big news coming out of Brazil were those tribunals. Mm -hmm. They were like race tribunals, but it was all very confusing. And then, of course, it disappeared from the news because there were other things happening in the fall of 2016, Russian meddling in the election. What happened there with that? So what happened is that... Fairly recently, Brazil instituted affirmative action programs in government and civil service jobs. But Teresa and I were talking earlier about how those kinds of quotas had already long existed in the university system, right? Yeah, 2003, when Lula was elected, Mm -hmm. he also passed a law that the teaching of Afro-Brazilian history was mandatory in all public schools. I don't think we could do that here. Yeah. We can't they, even get evolution taught. Yeah. Like you have well. to, you have to teach about Afro-Brazilian history. You have to educate people on that aspect of Brazilian culture and society. Yeah. It was really progressive. Yes. So I, I just bring that up because I think it's important, even though the affirmative action piece was very much modeled on the United States, like they, they were looking to us mm. for that. There were other laws that were really specific to Brazilian conditions and values and circumstances that kind of fall within that. But anyway, coming back to the tribunals Mm -hmm. and affirmative action. Well, I think one one thing you, many of the things you stated bear repeating, but one thing that we should really be paying attention to is the fact that there were no affirmative action laws on the books until 2003 in Mm -hmm. Brazil, correct? Right. And then the ones that are, I'm going to talk about in a minute, that apply to civil service and government positions weren't actually enacted until, I think, 2014. So this is very recent. Affirmative action really didn't exist in Brazil until until very recently. Um, also, however, there were never any formal anti-miscegenation laws on the books in Brazil during its long period of racial anxiety and slavery. So, so I just, to clarify, a second ago, it made it seem like Cat- the the binary of white and black that exists in the United States doesn't really apply to Brazil, that there are many other categories other than just white and black. So how does an affirmative action program or an anti-miscegenation law work when you have multiple classes rather than just two? Well, that's exactly what these tribunals were about. So there was a particular case of one individual, I'll link in the show notes to the article about it. I can't remember his name, but he was somebody who had, um, passed the civil service exam and applied for a job in either the government or civil service and self-identified as Afro-Brazilian. However, people saw his picture, like his picture got leaked out somewhere and people were like, no, no, he's white, right? He's too white looking. Like he's just trying to cheat and get in under this quota. So does the quota only have two categories, Euro-Brazilian and Afro-Brazilian, or are there more than two categories? I think the quota is explicitly for Afro-Brazilians. And indigenous Brazilians as well. Mm -hmm. So there's three categories? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this guy sort of unwittingly became at the center of a national controversy about a law that had just been enacted two years ago. And 
He ended up going to eight dermatologists and getting his skin color measured by skin reflectometry. No way. Eight of them in Brazil. and The old anthropometric skin reflectivity yes. stuff? Yes. No way. Skin reflectometry, which is a measure of how much light your skin reflects. And in this article, he's trying to sort of like claim his Afro-Brazilian identity by saying, well, look at all these American people who are considered black, who have the same skin tone as me. And so there's the difference in colorism and racism right there. Exactly. Oh, Thank man, you. that's so good. Thank you. Yeah. So the government was like, what are we going to do? And they set up a tribunal to hear his case and the cases of other people. So up to that point in this very short history of this law, they'd been relying just on people's self-identification to determine whether or not they were eligible for this quota. Um, and they realized with this particular individual that they couldn't do that. And so their solution was to, to assemble a group of people to essentially judge whether a person counted as Afro-Brazilian or not, and therefore could be considered for this quota. Yeah. And there was another case, I think it was 2007 in Brasilia, of mm -hmm. twin brothers. One was accepted as Afro-Brazilian and one was rejected. Mm -hmm. So that was another controversy. So it really comes down to perception. So there are these tribunals basically look at your image and mm -hmm. say whether or not you fit into some nebulous category of yes. being of African descent or not. Mm -hmm. But it's not like, um, you know, in Germany, the Nuremberg laws, right? It's if your grandmother is counted as Jewish, then you're Jewish. No, it's no. appearance. Okay. Mm -hmm. cool. yes. Well, I want to go back to the idea of racial democracy, which I think might shed light a little bit on this whole, like, who's Afro-Brazilian and who isn't. Mm -hmm. The elite Brazilians, the ones who were the Euro descendants, really saw whitening as a salvation. Like, this was how they were going to solve their black problem, how they were going to be a modern nation, how they were going to be able to adopt technology. But what happened by the 1920s and moving into the 1930s is that whitening wasn't working Brazil was still very Afro-Brazilian, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was starting to this kind of sense that this isn't the the solution. This isn't the narrative. This isn't who what Brazil is. And so he's not the guy who really, he's not the first one to think this, but he was the one who really articulated this idea of racial democracy. And that is Gilberto Freire, mm -hmm. who was from... Pernambuco, one of the north or northeastern states of Brazil that had a very long tradition of sugar plantations. He was from a very wealthy plantation family. And he studied at Columbia University with Franz Boas. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he got a master's degree. And then he came. We'll talk about Boas more in a future episode <laughs> coming right on up. Okay. Yep. So he was a student of Boas. And then he went back to Brazil. He wrote this book called... Um, a Casa Grande Senzala, The Big House in the Slave Quarters, uh, which came out in 1933. And it totally turned that narrative of whitening the nation on its head. And now the whole vision is, no, racial mixing is good. This is what makes us Brazilians different. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, and, and he had seen, he was a big critic of Jim Crow. He didn't, he was a critic of what was happening in Alabama, Mississippi, and furthermore, and he wasn't always necessarily explicit about this, but we're not Alabama, Mississippi. We Brazilians know how to get along. And mm -hmm. the reason we do is because we embrace racial mixing. Now, I have my students read the part where he's talking about the African heritage. And it's interesting. 
um, at least in this one section, he's only talking about the mulatta lover, how uh, black women initiate white men into sex, right? That mm-hmm. they're sexual partners and, you know, the mammies who take care of them and feed them. And it's all about this kind of emotional care. There have been critiques about this. But um, but compared to what had come before, it was pretty revolutionary mm-hmm. that he was valorizing African heritage in Brazil. He's also the guy from whence emerges this idea of racial democracy, that because you don't have, because you have the absence of racial violence, because there's no Jim Crow, because there's no segregation, there must be no racism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually been the big problem mm-hmm. for combating racial inequality in Brazil. I think it's the same thing in the United States. It's colorblind you, racism, basically. The absence of of uh, legal racism doesn't mean there's not racism. And so I think it's actually harder to combat it. Okay. Can we come up with something summative? Yes, we can. Can you come up with something summative? <laughs> yes. I think what we're saying here is that slavery and ideas about race and racism and colorism and laws around those things were really different in Brazil and the U.S., but in some ways perhaps we're not so much different. And the fact that they are maybe on the surface or on paper different doesn't mean that there wasn't similar and is not still today, similar processes of discrimination and sort of um, privileging of, of lighter skinned people over darker skinned people in both places. Are there lessons that you think that we can take, we in the United States in Western Europe even could take from the Brazilian example about how to work better with racism, racial tension, stuff like that? I think what can be really useful, at least for my U.S. students, is to, A, we can look to Brazil and see ourselves, but we can also see how Brazil is very different. And I think there's something good about looking beyond our borders and situating ourselves within a bigger conversation. It's like a safe, distant mirror. And so it's not like in our face, this is us, but we can see a a reflection of it and maybe get at it in a different way. Well, we totally agree. (laughs) 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 Teresa Crabelli, thank you so much for coming on. Speaking of race, we're really privileged. I feel like I've learned a ton in just a little bit of time. Me too. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk. All right. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian of science. And this has been another episode of Speaking of Race. We will have Jim back quite shortly. Okay. Other things at the end. You're going to edit this out, right? No. No. Any misstep you make, we're preserving forever in hundreds. Okay, two people will hear. Okay.